1: Lastly, our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn more about how we can make your difficult conversations easier. Zwane, thanks for joining us, my friend. Thank you for having me, Kwame. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So um, my name is Swade Marshall.
0: I'm a physician, an anesthesiologist, and interventional spine specialist by training. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of growing up in a family uh, where uh, my, my cousin, is a, is a brilliant attorney and negotiations expert. And so I'm a part of the, the family. Kwame my cousin, for your listeners. And um, uh, we're both Guyanese, our, our, our moms are first cousins. And they were, they were also really good close friends on top of being cousins. And so there was an intentional effort in my upbringing, though I grew up in Guyana and Kwame grew up in Ohio, for our families to bring us together as uh, as, as, as two young males in our family. Um, and so he's an attorney, I'm a doctor, and um, I think we, we, we both are, um, the prize and, and joys of our collective family units as well. So thank you for having me on, cousin.
1: No, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Everybody, uh, you know, every, you have that person in your family where you're, you're always compared to them. Uh, Zwade was that person. for <laughs> Always <laughs> being super accomplished. And so it's, it's, it's exciting to have his expertise on. And so, Zwade, tell, tell the folks about your, your background in medicine and in business.
0: Sure. So uh, born and raised in Guyana and then moved to the US to go to college at Emory. So I got a full ride to Emory University back in 2001. Uh, did a, a bachelor's in economics. I always kind of liked uh, the way money works and the way economies are are molded by finance. Uh, and then um, took a year between college uh, and medical school to be a high school mathematics teacher, uh, one of the most transformational uh, years in my life. Talk about negotiations. Like I learned to negotiate with, with kids. Um, and and you kind of get a true glimpse into the, the human condition. It was a Title I school uh, free lunch program for 90% of the students there. And it shaped my worldview and perspective and also helped me today to kind of understand where my patients are coming from. So after teaching uh, high school math, um, I went on to Emory for my medical training um, and uh, did the dual MD, MBA degree. Chose to go to business school at Emory as well, Gleisweta, um, uh, because it was around the time when the Affordable Care Act was being conceived. And it felt as though if you weren't at the table, you were going to be on the menu. And I wanted to understand more about how um, uh, money and and economics molded the practice and the delivery of healthcare systems. And so it was an operations major or focus in business school. And then uh, that was kind of my calling card when I applied into residency. Um, Leaving leaving Emory, uh, I, I interviewed widely and uh, ended up at Harvard for my anesthesia training. Um, I was chief resident there, and then uh, did my interventional spine uh, pain training at Harvard as well. This is now six years ago. I, I moved back to Atlanta, uh, became a partner at a large private equity-backed interventional spine group. And private equity in medicine is another discussion for another day, but it certainly shapes uh, the way care is delivered. And uh, left that model to open my own practice so we're sitting in my office right now regenerative spine and pain specialist in metro atlanta uh, and I, I take care of pain patients um, with spine but also with joint complaints um, and, uh, and and many of them uh, are in narcotic medications and need to see me uh, as a as a as a way to get them into a more functional state um decreased medication regimens and also increased functional uh, ability from
1: interventions as well that is fantastic. And listeners, now you see why Zwade was the cousin that we were always <laughs> This is great. And so just a bit of a preview here. So with this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on Zwade as a doctor, Dr. Marshall. Um, so we're going to talk about the difficult conversations you have in your role as a doctor. In the future, we're going to have you back on to talk about some of these really fascinating business negotiations that you have come on because I, they're they're really interesting from an intra organizational negotiation perspective, and from an exiting an organization perspective, and then an inter organizational perspective as well. I've, you, your your expertise is vast in that regard, so we're excited uh, for this to be a, a strong start. So with this episode we get to start off with a listener question and this is from mike fish and so He's a podcast listener, and he's a physician. And he says, I'm wondering if you have an episode or could do one regarding negotiating difficult situations. For example, there can be drug addicts who constantly want to negotiate for more drugs, and drugs are not in their best interests. There's also a negotiation for social situation in which patients want to remain in the hospital because they're too anxious to go home or they might be homeless. I'm sure the physician in your family could provide some input, too. Thanks, Kwame and here we go here we go so we have you here let's let's address that first question about pain people who want more narcotics but it's not in their best interest how do you approach that conversation Sure.
0: I think it's really cool that uh, Mike, it's Mike Fisher, I think you said his name, is is a doctor listening to negotiating podcasts. I thought I was the only kind of nerd that uh, that consumed this kind of content. Um, but I think it's part and parcel to, to, to the struggle that physicians have uh, in terms of balancing medicine, but also uh, negotiating the sphere of dealing with patients who may have a preconceived notion about what is best for them uh, and uh, having a physician who has more data understanding some of the consequences of, of of those decisions. And so the pain management conundrum is an age-old uh, conversation that I think we've been having more actively over the course of the last decade because of the opioid crisis. Now, a part of the challenge with pain, this is the, to the heart of Mike's question, is that pain is this complex, emotional, subjective experience. It's Wholly subjective. We don't yet have a pain meter or a pain monitor. We we can't measure your pain score the way we measure a blood pressure or a heart rate, uh, and 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 therein lies the crooks of the matter. Because you have to trust that the patient that's explaining to you they have a a complicated pain condition is really experiencing that complex pain condition. And in the time now of this scrutiny around pain medicine and pain medications and the, the the millions of Americans who are overdosing and dying from narcotics and opioids, um, it, it has put the doctor in a very precarious position of protecting him or herself while also delivering care for patients. So to practice medicine in this space today, you have to hold two competing thoughts in your head simultaneously. One of them is your main responsibility the 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 kind of age-old adage of medicine is you know first do no harm Uh, and we're trying to establish a therapeutic rapport with a patient who's struggling because they're there to see you while at the same time appreciating the fact that there are government entities and law enforcement agencies that are prioritizing prosecuting physicians for patients that have opioid addiction issues. And so um, I intend to delve into the actual pain conundrum a little bit more
1: in a few moments. No, that is a, a great synopsis of the challenge because as a doctor, you want to provide relief. You want to help people in need. And at the same time, sometimes doing so in the way that they're requesting makes things worse. And you have the reality that you have a family <laughs> you have a staff you can't and and you like freedom <laughs> and so <laughs> <laughs> orange is not looking at me Kwame. exactly exactly you look great in white <laughs> right now you know so sure. you want to make sure that you're not crossing any ethical lines and so now that we have a good understanding of what the challenge is and why it's so difficult in your experience what is a good first step? Sure.
0: So the first step is uh, establishing the ground rules. And so the first visit is an exploratory visit. uh, And it's a time in which we're going to be asking questions, detailed questions, about the patient's pain complaint in an effort to do a few things. It's to validate their concern and also to, to convey to them that you can appreciate that their pain as, is as real to them and thus it's real to you as a treating physician as well and so it's get it's exploring all the, the the kind of detailed character questions about the pain condition while simultaneously going a little bit deeper into social circumstances place of employment type of work hobbies whether or not they have kids um what are the their functional goals divorcing a pain condition from a pain score, because I can't treat to a pain number, since numbers are really subjective. What I can treat to are goals. Some patients may say, Doc, I just want to be able to stand in church and sing the hymns and not have to sit down in the pew when the choir is standing. Others may say, "I just want to go out with my grandkids and take them for walks." I've got a three-year-old grandson who loves going to the park. I want to be able to do that. And if you and if I can establish to, with, with the patient that those goals are important to me for them, that that begins to establish that therapeutic alliance. Uh, I, I treat lots of athletes and golfers who 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 are afraid that my recommendation will be to stop golfing, stop biking, stop swimming, and and. When they meet a doctor that says, I can appreciate that this is a part of your identity, and my goal is to keep you doing the things that you love so that quality of life index does not go down, it goes a very long way in building the trust for the time when the decision-making comes into, what do I recommend as the treatment option? if, If my recommendation differs from their expectation, at least we've got some mutual understanding on what the goals are to begin with. Hi, I'm Catherine Kanapke, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at the American Negotiation Institute. Did you know our company offers completely customizable negotiation workshops? The negotiation and conflict resolution skills that your team will learn from these workshops are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram accounts to see our daily negotiation content. Thanks for listening. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. from the minds of visionaries to the desks of
1: disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it.
0: CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
1: The key word that you said there, Wade is, is Trust. And you, you're doing this in such a, a profound way. I want to break this down for the audience so they can see the, the gems that they could apply in whatever their situation is. So first, when we're talking about trust, It comes down to the the capability of you to deliver on what it is that you say you're going to do. And then also your willingness to deliver on what it is that you're saying you're going to do. And then the belief that your goals are shared. And so from the beginning, what you're doing is you're controlling the interaction by saying, all right, Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to just have them come in and te- them tell me what to do. I'm going to control this interaction and say, this is what you do. You're going to come in. This is the process. And I'm going to lead you through that process. And so that in itself, taking that leadership role in the interaction, establishes that credibility. And so you're managing the process throughout. But you're also, while taking control of the process, doing it empathetically. You're demonstrating that you're, you understand what they want and why they want it, and then you're saying, what is your goal? And then you're articulating the fact that their goal is, in fact, your goal. And when you put all of those things together, you have a high level of trust going into the rest of the relationship. I
0: love the way you summarized that. And and I think of it as ceding some of the control that patients come in thinking that doctors are dictators in, in many respects, where we say, here's the plan, you either abide by it or get out. And in this day of activated, engaged physician uh, patients who are their own advocates, we can no longer speak to people as a physician as though you you know what's best for their bodies. And so being able to give them some of that control of being able to tell me the story, tell me their goals, and then I'm buying into their plan as opposed to the reverse,
1: it gets folks a lot more relaxed and comfortable with, with my recommendations. Absolutely. And yeah, I think when you said the word dictator, we have to think about the another word that comes into mind, which is leader. And so sure. as a doctor, you are a leader. Um, and the difference between a leader... And a dictator is that with a dictator, the people below you, they don't have choice. <laughs> sure. You know, you're taking that autonomy and agency away from them completely. But with leaders, you have followers. The, the choice to follow, that's something that they have control over. Sure,
0: sure. And I think because there's a there's some information asymmetry where I know more about some of the, the broader aspects of pain than the patient can i'm fitting their narrative into my diagnostic algorithm as we're speaking right and so what that empowers me to do is to help to direct their treatment plan where they will end up subscribing to or even requesting it because i'm leading them down a path as they tell me their story and i'm fitting them into to, to, to the algorithm so i'll give you an example Many patients come in uh, already in high-dose opiates. And because of all the scrutiny around opioids and, and medicine, their previous physician may have been closed down or may have, may have retired and are looking to find a new doctor who will prescribe the same regimen they've been on before. And so you can tell when someone's telling you their, their pain history and emphasizing the fact that oxycodone and oxycontin is what works best for me it's always worked well nothing else seems to help and 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 in that many doctors will respond and react immediately to those comments whereas my position is i'll write it down i'll 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 not affirmatively I'll, I'll i'll even you know ask about others that they've tried and affirm that it makes sense that those medications may work for your pain and then later on in the conversation i'll ask about things like like constipation, bowel habits, whether or not uh, there's any um, uh, impotence or erectile dysfunction, any mood swings or liability in, uh, in in depression or anxiety, all of those things are side effects of high dose narcotics. And so, as we get towards the point of the consult, where I'll go over a, a treatment plan, I'll then circle back to some of the symptoms that that that's affecting their functionality, and attribute those symptoms. To the high dose opioids, and explain why a part of the treatment plan will be to responsibly decrease the medications, while also doing alternative therapies that can be that, that can be more effective and very helpful to them. And you see a light bulb go go off. Where some may want to object, but they kind of feel trapped, where they can't at this point because we've we've had this very pleasant, amicable, uh, empathetic conversation, and now it's their It's their job from the social contract to now kind of continue in this amicable way to to, to give me the trust. And so you'll see them looking skeptical but thinking, I'll give it a try. And then I think what what kind of brings it all together is is having that constant feedback from me saying that I'm with you in this journey. and And I get that it's going to be tough. But just give this other intervention a try while we do these other things that are going to be very helpful for your overall health. And, and it's, it's, it, it's gone far.
1: This is fantastic. And I feel obligated to cite uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini, um, the author of Influence, because we just interviewed him earlier today. And he talks about the principle of consistency, where if you said something in the past, you feel obligated in the present to remain consistent to what you said. And essentially what you're doing through this process, through curiosity is you're giving them the opportunity to share what they want and why they want it. You're helping them to articulate their goals. And then what you're doing is you're saying, hey, based on what you said before, actually, this treatment plan helps you to meet your goals, and this is why. And so in their mind, that that hesitation that you're sensing is their desire to remain consistent. Sure. (laughs) But but that consistency is leading them down a path that they did not anticipate. (laughs)
0: That's exactly right, that's exactly. So I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get that book. Um, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier to me and, and uh, I, I do whatever you tell me to do Kwame, so I'll, <laughs> I'll certainly take a take a listen. Um, and I'll tell you that it, this, this entire construct is challenging for doctors because we're under time constraints, right? The way, the way compensation medicine has changed, you're watching the clock. And so having a patient kind of go through their own narrative at their own pace, it's it, it, it's time prohibitive to, to allow them that, that kind of agency to speak ad at, at, at nauseum. And so part, some of the things that I do to kind of help to, to, to gather data outside of the actual examination room is that we have a lot of uh, um, surveys and app-based modules that they must complete prior to the first visit. The other thing is, resisting the urge to interrupt when when someone says something that you vehemently disagree with so so letting it let them have their peace and 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 have it be said because those interruptions fracture that therapeutic alliance where in that moment the patient sees you as more adversarial than someone who's 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 there to be to, to, to foster that therapeutic alliance and For me, it comes a little easier because I I grew up with a pronounced stutter. And so like the King's speech, um, I would rehearse words I wanted to say all of my youth in my head 15 or 20 times before I said it. So in the natural course of a classroom uh, environment, I'm sitting there thinking that I want to say these 15 words. And in the time I'm rehearsing it, I'm getting to hear so much other input that by the time the output comes out, it seems so much more profound because I'm editing, I'm using inputs that I've heard while I was editing and rehearsing, and it allows me to kind of process better. Being in business school, I was able to kind of focus intentionally on that personality or that output defect and make it into a strength where I embrace the rehearsal, I embrace listening, I make notes because people will tell you what they want. They'll, in a negotiation, if you let folks speak they'll give you the answers. You'll know their motivation. You'll know the outcome that, that they're desiring. And 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 if you just let them the freedom to get their bit out, not only do you have the information you need to get to an amicable outcome, but they then buy into your philosophy because you appear to be empathetic and and reasonable
1: in the interaction. This is a really great point. And I it's something that so many people struggle with it's something that i still struggle with because it's that need to correct like no i I recognize that wasn't a misspeak it's i with every fiber of my being reject what it is that you just said and i need to correct you so so let's break it down because again people we people could just say hey don't interrupt and then we move on to the next thing There's a challenge. Everybody knows they shouldn't interrupt, but we do it anyways. So let's break down just some mindset tips that people can keep in mind when it comes to not interjecting on every single point that you disagree with. Sure. So
0: I think there are a few things there, and uh, I love the way you framed that. I think the first point, though, is if you give them the ability to speak and make their positions known fully then at the time that you create your response, you're not just responding to a point, but you can dismantle the entire construct. So so you'll have the you'll have all the information that you need to thoughtfully and carefully craft your rebuttal at a time that they're not expecting you to be giving them a rebuttal. But you're putting together a cogent kind of plan or a summary of the conversation, uh, and so and so you'll have more information from their perspective to be able to respond in a more ap- appropriate manner, and so that ability to let them just kind of speak their piece, and then after it's all said, respond fully to everything using the expertise, using the fact that there's, there, there, there are informational tidbits that you can add to give color and context and validate some of their points, while then disputing and refuting the other ones that are not valid, it, it, it creates an, an overall more positive impression from the patient's
1: perspective. Absolutely. And this reminds me of one of our earlier episodes we had. um, I believe it was December of 2019 with my friend Dan Oblinger, hostage negotiator. And um, uh, he's been in the police. I heard that episode. Yeah, he's great. And so he's talking about deception and the way that he addresses deception is very similar to the way that you're talking about addressing things that you disagree with and not interrupting. Because the metaphor he used was he thinks about deception as like. An animal and so a little bit of it peeks out of the bushes and you want to jump on that, but you don't he's like no I want to hear the whole thing. I need to see the entire Animal and it's just like what you said because it's a brilliant way of describing it and I've I've never heard it Broken down in this way you can address a, a specific point or you can almost like a sniper very precisely address the entire construct and dismantle the entire construct after you've given them the opportunity to express themselves fully. That's right. Um, and then
0: you've got a patient who is now engaged, who understands that you've heard, that they, they feel heard and validated, because oftentimes, by the time they see someone like me, they've probably seen four or five other doctors. They've seen their internist, their orthopedic surgeon, their neurologist, and, and you don't know what experiences they've had. But principle to what we're doing is ensuring that they feel heard and validated, that their pain and their, their pain experience is real, even though we can't see it or measure it. And I'm going to go ahead and, and now address that,
1: having got all the facts, to make an informed decision and what's the next step. And this serves as a really fascinating metaphor for emotions as well, because like you said, pain is subjective. I can't, with some kind of meter, determine how much pain you are in fact feeling similarly we have to leave, leave it to somebody's self-reported measure of emotional discomfort and sure. a mistake that i see people making all the time is they don't believe somebody else's um subjective interpretation of how they're feeling oh, just toughen up. It's okay. That is not acknowledging how people feel. That doesn't address it because now they feel through the rest of the conversation, no, Kwame doesn't believe me. I need to impress upon him just how emotionally distraught I am. And so it's almost like we should treat emotions in the same way that you're treating pain. They have a self-reported measure, I'm going to reflect back my understanding, acknowledge that that emotion, and let them know, hey, I, I understand where you're coming from. I believe you. Let's work together to find some way to alleviate it. But let's find the right way. But we have to work collaboratively to get there. Absolutely.
0: And funny you mention emotions because there's an emotional component to pain, right? It's this complex emotional subjective experience. And oftentimes, one of the most salient treatment regimens for the chronic pain patient is a pain psychologist to help with mindfulness therapy, but try suggesting that as your first recommendation, you'll lose every single patient, right? And so as you listen and you're informed and you make your recommendations that involve, you know, some medications, maybe a, a spine injection or two, physical therapy, and then a pain psychologist with the goal to help, appreci- help the patient appreciate exactly what that pain is having on their life, and if they've become pain centered or pain centric, where well, it's now a part of their identity, uh, and helping to 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 kind of disconnect that identifying feature of their personality with their pain syndrome, and helping them see that they're more than just that. And so, it's it's the pain doctor's job to do more than just put a needle in or give a give a
1: pain medication, but to help patients see the the, the bigger picture. Absolutely. And with the time that we have left, there's, there's one last thing I want to address, which is time. And you, you've you touched on this, because we have the reality that there is a limited amount of time that we have for these conversations. Um, and given that fact, how do you try to get so much of the, the richness From this process and this interaction but also manage to do it in a a time boundary that can be really challenging at times sure
0: so i'll I'll admit i haven't figured it out perfectly it's still a struggle it's it's an ongoing struggle i think there are times when you've got a really challenging patient who you'll just have to invest the time with uh, and uh and be late for the next appointment afterwards because you just need to invest the time up front with this person. And these are all people with with families and lives and experiences and prior surgeries. And, and so you cannot treat them all the same. And 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 so the the question was framed in how do you manage time? Well, a part of it is managing the person. And at at, at times the time is not the priority. All right. Now, but but then there are things that you can do to to help to optimize the time you do have. The first rule is sit down during the encounter. Studies have shown that if you sit, and this is this, this is a doctor-specific kind of recommendation, when you enter a patient's examination room, you can stand while they're sitting. You can examine them uh, and speak, speak to them or at them while they're sitting and you're standing. And you leave the room in three minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes later. And the, the interaction from their perspective is that you were rushed for the visit. If you sat down eye to eye and treated the examination in kind of in, in phases. So you sit, introduce, you greet, you question. That could be three and a half to four minutes. Then you get up and you examine, then you sit again, and then you summarize, and then you leave. The perception of that patient that you spent 80 percent more time with them than you actually did, because that because you were sitting, and so that's a research article that was published in uh, JAMA about 12 years ago in the pain space. And I employ that daily. The other thing is that making myself accessible to the patients through my staff. So we have portals ways for them to text into the portal, and I've got a team of of, of of extenders that'll reply to questions, and then escalate it up to me if if the question is nuanced or complex enough that it warrants uh, a physician's perspective. And so, having that access to the practice, not necessarily to me, but to a healthcare professional, also gives them a release and an outlet to feel to feeling as though they're being heard and someone cares about their overall uh, uh, care and treatment.
1: I love this. And I think there are the three main things that everybody can can take from this. The first one is there's no easy answer for this. (laughs) When you have a time limitation, but you have a really tough conversation, there is no easy answer for that. And I think that's important because some people would just throw their hands up and say, I guess I'm not going to do anything because I can't figure out the answer. Hey, newsflash, there is no great answer. You just have to do the best with what you have. And I think that's really, really important for people to understand so it normalizes the experience and they're not so hard on themselves um, based on their performance because of the time limitation. The second thing is the reality that time is subjective. And so even though the study that you gave where it says the perception of the person was that you spent 80 percent more time than you actually did this is focused on physicians i think we can replicate this in the business world too if we were to let's say avoid distractions if i'm constantly looking at my phone people are perceiving as the as i i have better things to do checking my email doing all these other things looking at the clock People are going to perceive that I'm rushed, and it's likely it's going to have a similar impact as the sitting study that you described, too. So I think for the listeners, you need to think about different ways that you could be signaling that you are not completely there and the impact it's going to have on the perception of the other person. And then lastly, how you're strategically extending the conversation. Yes, the reality is I have this much time, but that doesn't mean the conversation ends. And so you encourage people to continue interacting with you through you, maybe directly to you through messages, but also through your team with a lot more um, availability. And then they still have that feeling that you, through your organization, are still caring about the communication and your responsive. Beautifully said. I I agree with all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Well, cool. Before you go, uh, can you let the listeners know again about you and about your practice and how they can get in touch?
0: Sure. Um, again, it's Dr. Zwade Marshall. Um, I'm at regenerativespines.com. That's an S at the end of spines. Uh, and uh, and um, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I do consults by telemedicine as well. Uh, and I'm happy to have any conversation with anyone that's struggling with chronic pain and needs to, uh, to, to speak about uh, responsible and, and empathetic ways of getting their function and
1: their life back. Love it. Zwade. thanks again, my friend. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure being here with you, Kwame. Thank you for having me.